You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. In the state of Colorado, which is so blessed by so many and varied recreational opportunities and areas, you'd be hard-pressed to pick a favorite. But for anglers, 11-mile reservoir may be one of the most popular in the Centennial State. Today on Colorado Outdoors, we learn about its history, unique species, and fishery management outlook for one of the great angling opportunities in the state of Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Outdoors, the podcast for Colorado Parks and Wildlife. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. The podcast is powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. GOCO invests a portion of Colorado lottery proceeds to help preserve and enhance the state's parks, trails, wildlife, rivers, and open spaces. Its independent board awards competitive grants to local governments and land trusts and makes investments through Colorado Parks and Wildlife. Created when voters approved a constitutional amendment back in 1992, GOCO has committed more than $1.2 billion in lottery proceeds to more than 5,200 projects in all 64 counties without any tax dollar support. Well, let's get into it, talking about 11 Mile Reservoir. Joining us is Brian Johnson. He's the manager of Mount Shabado Hatchery in Salida. Brian, welcome to the podcast. To begin with, just tell us a bit about your background and how you worked your way into becoming the hatchery manager at Mount Shabado. Well, I, uh, you know, I, I knew from a pretty early age that um, growing up in Colorado and enjoying fishing in the outdoors that, you know, I wanted to work with fish. Um, so, I, you know, I decided in probably middle school maybe even that um, – to look into some of the places to that you could work uh, if you had a degree that involved fisheries. And I went to Colorado State, got my degree in fisheries biology, and I really actually didn't know that hatcheries even existed. I mean, I, going to school, it was about being a fisheries biologist or a wildlife manager or something like that. But once, uh, once I graduated, I had a good buddy of mine. Um, he had gotten on at the Mount Shabano Fish Hatchery. And so I graduated and he he got me a position here as a as a temporary employee. And so I worked I worked at Mount Shabano as a seasonal for about six months. Okay. And then at the time we took a you had to take a test, a written test to get on as a, a permanent employee. And so I took that test um, and I got hired on basically as soon as my seasonal um, position ended at Mount Chavano. I got hired on the Poudre River fish hatchery up outside of Fort Collins. Mm-hmm. And from there, I, so I worked there for about 22 months and the assistant manager position had opened down here at Mount Chavano and, and I applied for it and I interviewed for it and I got that position. And I, and I knew that I wanted to come back to this valley. And it's, it, it's interesting because I grew up on the front range and, you know, and grew up in the city. And, but once I found, once I found this place in the mountains, I was, I didn't know anything about Salida at the time, but once I found it, it's like, I got to get back there. There's just, there's just so many good 
outdoor activities and opportunities in this area. So, so I came back here um, as the assistant manager in 2004 um, is when I got on as the assistant manager here. And I worked as the assistant manager for about 10 years, maybe a little longer than 10 years. And the manager here retired and I applied for that position and got that position. And I've been the manager here since 2015. All right, and the rest is history. Well, aside from your you know, educational work resume, it should be noted here, you're also an angler, an experienced angler. How long have you been fishing, and, and how long specifically at 11 Mile have you been out, out in that area and, and been testing the waters? Well, I've been fishing as, I mean, as long as I can really remember. Um, I, just, I, I remember one of my first memories of fishing was when I was five years old um, with my dad and one of his friends. We hiked back to the inlet of Gross Reservoir, which is just outside of Netherland. And I remember that so vividly for some reason. And, you know, we caught some, what I know now are catchable trout that had been stocked in there. But, you know, back then it was just, you know, those were awesome big fish. And we did a shore lunch and, and it was really enjoyable. Um, and then as far as 11 Mile, I came, I came to 11 Mile. I probably started ice fishing 11 Mile. I was trying to think back, maybe middle school or possibly even high school um i remember piloting in the back of my friend's dad's truck and taking the <laughs> it always seemed like it took a day to get here but you know leave at 3 a.m and drive from the front range to 11 mile and uh, we'd ice fish it and we never we never really would do well out there huh. um but you know i've fished it a lot of years now and and uh you know just Figuring that place out, it's a, it's a definitely a unique fishery. Well, and, and that leads me to the next question here. And I was wondering, from the time you started fishing it back in your high school days until now, was it as good then as it was now? Was the, the fact that you struggled early more a comment about you as an angler than it was about 11 Mile? And, and so how has it changed, you think, over the years? Well, I think, you know, I think early on, I, I think 11 Mile has probably been a good fishery for years and years and years. And, uh, it's just early on, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know what I was doing. And it came, it came with spending, spending time out there and just trying to see where, you know, where the fish were and trying to figure out, you know, what they bite on in that, that reservoir. Um, it's always been known to produce big fish and mm-hmm. especially, especially in the spring and fall when fish are running, running up the dream stream. I mean, all those anglers, there's a, definitely a following for the, the spotting fish that run out of that reservoir. Sure. Um, but, but yeah, it just, it was, we, we didn't catch as many big fish even once we started figuring it out back in the early 2000s as what that, what it's putting out today. You hear you, so here you got this experience as an angler. You, you got your experience running a hatchery. How have you been able to take all that knowledge in? What do you take over that position in 2015 and, and, and apply that to, to 11 mile? How's that process been for you? Well, you know, I'd say that, um, I don't know that my experience I guess my experience as an angler in 11 mile has just come with putting time in out there and, and, you know, the fishing part of it. But what, what the hatchery has allowed me to do is um, talk with the biologist and just share my observations. And, and, you know, what we'd seen out there, um, my buddy and I used to fish there all the time and, and they have some tournaments out there and those during those tournaments, the winning fish were pretty much always a cut bow. Okay. And at that at that time, we were rarely stocking any cut bows into 11 Mile. Um, it was all managed off of sub-catchable trout, so trout less than 5 inches, um, somewhere around there. And it would get lots of 5-inch fish, but majority of them were rainbow trout. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it also get some catchable trout. Also, again, they were rainbows. And you'd see a lot of, like, two-and-a-half-pound, you know, 16-, 18-inch fish uh, caught out of there, uh, of the rainbows. But then the big fish would be, like, a five- or six- or seven-pound cupo. Okay. And so, you know, working at the hatchery, I, you know, started talking to the biologist at the time, uh, Jeff Spone, and we discussed the possibility of getting more cupos in there. And the only way we could do that was – to um, stock them in the winter through the ice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is just the time that they were available as eggs. Uh, it takes us 12 to 14 months to raise them to a 10-inch fish, so we'd get those eggs in November, October, and by the time they were 10 inches, it was going to be going to be through the ice in January, February, or March. Okay. You know, speaking of cut bows, um, maybe explain to the listeners of the podcast here exactly what a cut bow is and, and the different combinations of cut bows that you, you folks produce there. Okay, so a, so a cut bow is a cross between a rainbow trout and a cutthroat um, trout. And in this case, all of our cutthroats that we use to make cut bows are the Snake River cutthroat, okay. um, which is a which is a species that's native up in Wyoming, um, but we've used it as a as a recreational fish for lots of years now. And we house those at the Crystal River um, Fish Hatchery, which is over in Carbondale. Mm-hmm. And so they, so Crystal River makes the majority of our cut bows, and they, they have multiple different strains of rainbow trout that they'll use to cross with those, um, those Snake River cutthroats. And so the, the first one we get is uh, what we call a – everything's an acronym. We have the three – Three letters for every strain that we get in that we use in our um, database to track what uh, what strains the fish we have. So the first one we get, we get in, and we call them BXN, which are a cross between a Bel Air rainbow and the Snake River cutthroat. And I was trying to find the origin of the Bel Air, but it's basically just a domesticated rainbow strain that's been around for a, a lot of years. Um, and that's these are all housed at that the Crystal River facility. Um, another strain we've been doing for, I don't know, maybe like 10 years now, maybe a little longer is, a um, Hofer Harrison rainbow trout, okay. which is, uh, it's a, it's a whirling disease resistant rainbow. So it, uh, was started to stock into some of these streams and, and, uh, reservoirs and it has this resistance to whirling disease. So you know, the hope is that eventually they could run up these streams and reproduce, yeah. um, but that hoe for Harrison rainbow is crossed with the Snake River cutthroat, and that produces a what we call hoe for Harrison snake uh, cut bow, which is HHN is the acronym for that. Okay. So lastly, we get uh, we do another cut bow out of the Crystal River facility, and they have some uh, cold water resistant rainbow trout, and these cold water resistant rainbow trout are really good in a hatchery situation because we have. Uh, uh, something called bacterial cold water disease that we we can get from time to time, and these are resistant to it. Do well on the facility, but that rainbow trout um, it, it's crossed also with the Snake River cutthroat, and we call these the PRRs. And we started putting those in 11 mile last year, and then again this year. So it's got a couple years. And, and the, the thing about all these cupos is it's just you know offering that variety. Some some find a different niche that they fill in these reservoirs, and it helps. Helps with the management and helps with the anglers. So, Brian, interesting hearing about the thought process and the collaboration between you and Jeff and all the work you've done there. Do those same principles that you're talking about in 11 Mile then apply to Spiny Mountain Reservoir, you know, just next door? Yeah, so, so Spinny Mountain is a little, is slightly different. So we, 
back in back in uh, 2000, 2000, 2001, the biologist at the time, Greg Gerlich, he started a new management plan on spinny where they would stock only catchable trout. And so they started stocking only catchables because the pike population had become become super high and it was really just feeding off of all the subcatchable trout. So he started stocking only only catchables and this was done in the fall. So this was like November, December they would stock these fish and these were twelve inch fish and these were twelve inch rainbow trout. And for a lot of years, um, it definitely helped with the the pike not being able, the smaller pike not being able to eat them. But mm-hmm. they weren't they weren't growing nearly as big as they had historically. So what we had seen with 11 miles, so that, that was 2001. 11 miles, we started stocking only catchables in 2010. Okay. And so so what we've seen in 11 miles between 2010 and, let's say, 2014 was just how big those cutbows were getting in there and that, you know, they were growing to 18 inches in one year and then to five to six pounds by year two in the lake. And, and then by year three, they were, you know, some of them were pushing 10-plus pounds. So. Wow. Right. What they what they had yeah they were some big fish and so what they had seen there we kind of applied um, and those principles between Jeff Spone and Tyler Swar applied those to Spinny and we took over that completely in 2014 out of Mount Chavano and we were able to um, stock cut bows through the ice there and yes they were 10 inches but by the time spring rolls around they're 12 13 14 inches and they're definitely have put on some serious weight to them as well. Um, yeah. You know, they're probably pushing three quarters to a pound. And um, so, yeah, it's, it's definitely rolled over into there. And that one gets the HHNs only. They're resi- the whirling disease resistant. And, and that has to do, and you could probably talk to Tyler Suarez, the biologist, more about that, but they stock um, whirling re- disease resistant fry in this upstream of spinning. Mm-hmm. And so by putting those in the lake too, if they swim up to spawn, they're spawning with fish that are whirling disease resistance and passing that on to the, the next generation. Well, we're going to talk with Tyler, uh, Tyler here, in fact, coming up in, in just a few minutes here on, on the podcast, so we will certainly talk to him about that. Hey, from the hatchery side, t- talk about that process you go through to, to grow these these cut bows up to the catchable size and then stock them up, you know, up to 10 inches. I mean, talk about that process. It might be fascinating for people to hear how that works. Yeah, I can do that. So we we typically get our eggs as what we call eyed eggs. So when, it, when the eggs freshly fertilized, and brought into a hatchery, we call it a green egg. Well, then in about 20, 20 to 25 days, depending on the water temperature, those fish or those eggs will get an eye on them, and you'll be able to see this, see the, the fish eyes in the egg. And at that point, they can be shipped. So the shipping hatchery, in, in, in this case for all these cutbows at the Crystal River facility, they'll take those eggs and they'll do what we call bumping them. So they'll shock these eggs by pouring them into it like a dry bucket or against the screen or something. And, and any egg that wasn't fertilized will turn white. And they will put those, all those eggs through that what they call it, what we have is a photoelectric egg picker. And so those eggs go through this picker and it shines a light. And if the light goes through, it keeps the egg. Mm-hmm. The light doesn't, on, as in a dead egg, it spits that egg out with a little shot of compressed air. Okay. And so they'll pick all these eggs and they're picking millions of eggs a year. And so they'll pick these eggs and then they'll ship the eyed eggs to us, and we found that uh, the most efficient way to ship these eggs is to actually use FedEx, and they pack <laughs> them in coolers, and you ship them dry, <laughs> um, just just moist enough with some paper towel, 
So they're not in they're not in water. They're just kept moist and cool with some ice. Right. Ship them overnight, and they arrive here, and we'll put them in. We'll put them in these tall cylindrical jars, these egg jars, and in those egg jars, we'll just keep them rolling with a steady flow of water for a couple weeks, you know, a week or two. It just depends how far along they were when they shipped them, and then they'll start to hatch. Once they start to hatch, they're called sack fry, so they have a yolk sack attached to them, and that yolk sack um, will feed them for the next, you know, next month. They'll just lay on the bottom of our troughs we put them in for a month, and then as that sack gets absorbed, they swim up to the surface looking for food, and that's the time we we start offering them food. Okay. And as they grow, we move them multiple times around the hatchery, and then we move them outside to our to our raceways and from our raceways to our ponds, and we put about 15,000 in each one of our ponds, and we'll grow them to the final stages of 10 inches there. And, and these cupos take anywhere between – well, really 13 to 15 months for us to put hmm. from the time we get them as an egg until they're 10 inches and can be stocked in the into the reservoirs. That, that, that really is a fascinating process. And who knew FedEx is shipping those eggs around? That's, <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Hey, you also stock kokanee salmon. There, Kind of take us a little bit into that process. And, and then maybe most, most interestingly, uh, when and what size do you stock them? And, and, and where into 11 Mile or the Dreamstream do they actually go? So, yeah, we, we have done kokanee salmon here for a long time and, and stocked them back into 11-mile reservoir. And we do upwards of half a million in there every year. And these these eggs we get from wild spawns around the state. So mm-hmm. a lot of them come from Blue Mesa Reservoir, where the fish swim out of Blue Mesa up to the Roaring Judy Hatchery. They cover, you know, 20-plus miles of stream and end up in the raceways at the hatchery. They squeeze the fish fertilize the eggs with the males, bring them to their hatchery where they'll eye them up and then they ship them to us. And, and we'll bring them in, um, same thing with the eye on them. And in this case, usually with these kokanee eggs, since there's not a lot of kokanee in the system, we'll drive them to each other. So that we'll meet up on Monarch Pass and pick them up from the Roaring Judy hatchery and put them out in our one of our three facilities. Uh, we run the slight isolation unit, the Mount Uray hatchery and the Mount Chavano hatchery here. So we'll put them out depending on what time we need them to um, be to size. We'll put them out in one of those those hatcheries. We'll grow them from the time we get them in till about, oh, May, April, May is when they're two inches long. So two inches is typically when we stock these um, these kokanee. And, and we've been doing it for the last probably seven or eight years. Every kokanee we get, we uh, stock in the dream stream. Mm-hmm. And, the hope with that is the fish run into the lake, live there three years, and then swim back up the dream stream and offer offer an angling opportunity for the spawning uh, salmon. And just like salmon in the in the ocean, when they run up the run up into the stream to spawn, um, they'll die after they spawn. Sure. And there, there's not really a there's not really reproduction in the dream stream at this point currently with the with the coconut with the rainbows, um, but. You know that they they we do supplement that every year by every year that they're available we stock kokanee back into eleven mile. Okay, you know it really is some fascinating stuff that's going on up there at Mount Chavado Hatchery in Salida. Brian, great stuff. We appreciate you joining us here on Colorado Outdoors. Hey, no problem. It's great to be here. Well, we go from Brian Johnson to Tyler Swar. He's the aquatic biologist for the Upper South Platte River Basin. 
Tyler, thanks for joining us uh, here as we talk about 11 Mile. First off, just just maybe jump in with some kind of the broad strokes there. When, when we uh, Some of the anglers listening out there, what, what can they find at 11 Mile today? How's the fishing been, and, and, and what are we seeing? Sure, thanks. Yeah, the fishing at 11 Mile has been fantastic lately. The major species folks are going to uh, catch when they go out there is going to be cut bows, so that's a hybrid between a rainbow trout and a snake river cutthroat trout, and we stock those through the ice in the winter. And I'm sure folks have just heard about that with Brian. Yeah, That's the major species we've got out there. We also have a number of northern pike. Um, they're a, a large predatory fish, big teeth. Everybody likes seeing those. <laughs> we've got some kokanee salmon, and those are really popular for folks to take home and cook up. We've got a few brown trout, not too many of those guys. They don't show up too much in the nets, but they're in there. Um, we also have a, quite a few white suckers. That's a native sucker species. Some long nose suckers. Um, you might catch a common carp here and there. We have some bowfishes that go up to catch carp every once in a while. And then if you're really, really lucky, you might be able to catch a smallmouth bass. Um, some guys will catch those along some of the rock features. And a recent fish that people have been catching more of is yellow perch. Okay. Being an aquatic biologist overseeing 11 Mile, what are some of the fish management goals for the reservoirs you kind of look look forward into the future? Sure, yeah, with 11 Mile specifically, so in the park, we have three major reservoirs. There's Antero, Spinney, and 11 Mile. And we try to manage each of those differently to provide a different angling experience for folks because it just wouldn't be that fun if you went to, you know, all three places and had the same style of management going on. So, you know, we're just trying to diversify it so we have different strokes for different folks, as you would say. So yeah. 11 Mile, we try to manage that one um, for a little bit more of a family-friendly atmosphere, so a little bit, we can have a little bit more harvest if you want to take the kids out and, um, you know, have them catch their first fish and learn how to clean and cook that fish. Um, and, yeah, with 11 Mile, it's just more of a, you know, trying to create more of a family-friendly fishery as opposed to the gold medal fishery upstream and spinny. And then Antero is another uh, pretty good, you know, large fish, uh, large trout fishery as well. You know, when you think of 11 Mile, you, you, you think of uh, stories, and certainly I've been up in that area and, and talked to guys who've caught some big fish out of there, but there, there is a four-fish limit when you're up there, and only two can be over 16 inches. Maybe for anglers out there, explain uh, the purpose behind that rule. Sure. Again, that, that's just kind of foster some of that family-friendly atmosphere. Let folks, you know, can harvest some fish if they want when that 16-inch size limit that protects some of the larger fish so we do keep that that larger kind of uh, i guess almost a trophy component for those large um, trout and cut those okay you know you guys conduct annual surveys to monitor the fish population what are you finding what are you learning from from those processes when you go through them yeah so the annual surveys we do those on all of our major water bodies um, in my area and across the state so what that looks like for 11 miles specifically, um, we do the exact same thing at, at Spinney and Antero just to give people an idea. But okay. we set we set um, six cold water experimental gill nets. And so these are, it's essentially like a hanging curtain in the water column. And fish will swim into it head first. They get their head stuck. They can't figure out how to get out of it. And then we come and pick those, those fish out um, 24 hours or so later. And so that allows us to sample during light hours and, and during the nighttime, so if we catch all different species, whether or not they, they're more active at night or during the day, we set those nets in the same locations every year at roughly the same time of year. So I try to set them about the same week or so every year. Mm -hmm. So that way it allows you to standardize by time so you know that seasonality isn't going to affect 
what's going on and what you're catching and the location, the habitat isn't going to change. So you know that you're going to should catch roughly the same, you know, um, type of fish in the same area. So what you're looking at is really how that population trends through time and you're not, it allows you to eliminate some of the other variables. Okay. And what, what are we finding out through, through those uh, surveys? I know you talked a little bit about the diversity of fish, but uh, about the biomass and about the, uh, the health of, of 11 Mile, what, what are you learning through all that? Sure, it just allows us to track, you know, what's going on with the, the populations. And so, um, for example, like we're, we're really hitting on some of the stocking regime stuff for 11 Mile, how we've really changed that over the years. And so back, you know, when, when those fish were, the pike were stocked in the 60s, and up through the 90s, we were stocking these subcatchable rainbow trout, um, and those pike were just totally hammering those little guys. And so we found, like in the 1990s, the northern pike had eaten most of the trout, and they had gotten down to almost 9%. It mm. was like only 9% of our catch was trout. Okay. So the pike were really doing a number on those trout. And since we've switched the stocking regime to these catchables in the winter, uh, we have much better numbers and much more uh, sustainable numbers. So we're seeing more like, you know, for salmon, it's like 40 to 50%, sometimes 60, 70% of the catches is uh, trout and, and kokanee. So wow. really turn the things around since we've switched the stocking regime. And so just keeping an eye on that, making sure things aren't getting out of whack. And so we can still provide that, that excellent cutthroat trout or cut bow um, fishery that people are looking for. And we also have a northern pike trophy component as well. We just don't want to get that that trophy component of northern pike out of whack and, and starts taking over the whole fishery. Sure, that, that sounds, sounds like some interesting information there. Are are those surveys available? If anglers would like to kind of look at them, are they online someplace? Yeah, yeah. Our website's a little bit clunky and kind of hard to find them sometimes if you you know click around. The easiest way to do it is to just fire up Google and just type in CPW Fish Survey. And that'll be, I think it's your first hit that pops up. Okay. So you can click on that. And that's by no means all the surveys that the aquatic biologists do across the state. But it is it captures the really big popular fisheries that folks are really interested in. So that'll provide you some information on, you know, general amenities in the area, the stocking information from the past few years, and then generally what the fish population is looking like. You know, being an angler myself, you don't have to be around a fellow fisherman very long before someone's pulling out a phone and showing you all their, their big uh, trophy fish they've ever ever caught. And can just yep. bore, bore you to death. But I'm wondering, as, as you've gone back uh, over the years and documented uh, some of the big fish that pulled out of there, tell us a, a story or two about, about some of the, the monsters that have come out of the Love Mile. Yeah, the brown trout in there are pretty fantastic. We don't catch too many of them because they're kind of sneaky and they don't recruit very well to some of the gill nets. Um, but when we do catch the brown trout in there, they're some serious chunky, chunky boys. Like they get some 24, 25 inch, um, brown trout for sure in there. Wow. They look fantastic. Um, the biggest fish we've ever pulled out of there since I've been on it. So this is my fifth season. It was about, it's like, it's like a 42 inch Northern. Wow. And so there's, there's some good size fish in there for sure. The cut bows are fantastic. I mean, you can stack up, you know, 16 to 21 inch cut bows all day. I mean, hmm. there's a really a ton of really happy, healthy fish in there. Really good body condition on all those fish. All right, that gives all of us anglers something to shoot for next time we go out out there. And, and and what is it about? And obviously, 11 miles is a very fertile lake. But what is it about that body of water that that helps these fish grow to that size there? Well, 11 mile, it's the third major reservoir in a row. So we've got a ton of solar gain on all of those reservoirs, like Antero and Spinney building a ton of plankton, zooplankton, 
And as that all flushes downstream, that builds up. And then 11 Mile also has a really diverse habitat, uh, like a bathymetry, mm-hmm. as opposed to like a love or spinny and antero. So you've got real shallow end with the dream stream, and then it goes, it gets really, really deep. You have a ton of rock features, a lot of different diverse habitat for these fish to, you know, for their different life histories to, to utilize and to grow really large. You, you talked earlier uh, about the northern pike predation of, of trout. Is there a role that anglers play in kind of help managing the fishery and balance that, uh, you know, perfect balance between pike and trout there? Yeah, they, the anglers are huge. That's the main reason we're able to keep this trophy fishery going, really, is just from folks harvesting these northern pike. And we really ask folks, when you're out there, I'm sure folks have seen the signs, but we ask folks to harvest northern pike under like 28 inches just those little guys if we can get to them and remove them before they start hammering trout Hmm. um it'll really protect that trout fishery because a northern pike can eat anything that's great like almost greater than half of its body length and so since they're long and skinny fish i mean these 40 inch pike that we're talking about they can eat these trophy like 22 inch um trout okay so Trying to keep down the little ones before they really take off, that's the trick. So folks can harvest the little guys specifically. That'll help us out a ton. Okay. Well, so like with no bag limit for the pike, I understand that. But but also, you mentioned yellow perch areas. I understand there's no bag limit for yellow perch. Why would that be? Yeah, so those guys were actually illegally stocked in probably the early 90s, maybe like 89, late 80s. And since then, I mean, you'd see like one every couple of years in the surveys, not very many. So it wasn't a huge concern. Um, however, in the past, like three or four years, we're starting to see quite a few of them in the surveys. And guys are actually reporting that they're catching them now pretty okay. consistently. So they've become established. And so the major concern there uh, with the stocking regime, like we were talking about with Brian, is we're stocking these 10-inch large cut bows to try and prevent predation from um, the northern pike. So it excludes the little guys from being able to eat anything, and so it reduces that overall population. However, when we get this really small yellow perch, I mean, a really big yellow perch is probably, you know, like eight or nine inches. Okay. And so that provides a food source for those little tiny pike that were previously excluded by our change in the stocking regime. And so the fear is that those guys, once they can start eating a ton of these yellow perch, they can actually get past that, that limitation that we put on them by stocking these larger trout, and then we may be we may be going back to where we were um, back in the day with the pike kind of taking over things. So keeping a really close eye on that and making sure things aren't getting out of whack. Shifting gears here a little bit, uh, I know one area you folks have focused on is gill lice, and and maybe uh, for the listeners of the podcast, tell them exactly what that is, the impact, and is there something anglers should be looking for when they're out and about in regards to gill lice? Yeah, so gill lice, they're a parasitic copepod. And so we've got one species in Colorado that we've identified. It's Selmincoa Selmink- californiensis. So this species, it's a parasite. You can see it on the gills. It doesn't always af- have to attach to the gills. It can attach to the body, in the mouth, um, on the fa- base of the fins, things like that. Um, but, yeah, those we've started to document them in the upper South Platte around 2006 or so. And so they only attach to Oncorhynchus species, so that would be like rainbows, cutthroat trout, cutbows, and kokanee salmon, most notably. And they can cause um, serious issues, and we've been documenting this. I've been monitoring these guys pretty closely for the past few years. I was fortunate enough to have one of my, my uh, roommates in grad school. He was a, he's a gill lice research scientist, um, and now he's one of the biologists down in Alamosa. 
And so really got interested in these guys and keeping an eye on them. Uh, but, yeah, for folks, if you guys notice skill lice on a, a trout species, um, take a picture of it and send it to me or Esteban Hill. We have a fact sheet on the CPW website. Maybe I can get you a link to that if, if folks are really interested. Sure. Um, but that shows a map of where we've identified gill lice in the state and what species they're on. So we're just trying to track these things and learn more about them really at this stage and for trying to figure out you know, wh- why they're popping up and where they might have come from. We'll pass along that link that you're uh, going to get for us here at the end of the podcast to make sure that people can uh, can help you out in that regard. And I, I, you know, at 11 Mile, it, it's such an interesting area and a great fisheries we're talking about. You must get asked a lot of questions about 11 Mile. What, what's maybe the most common question or two you get asked about 11 Mile? What, what's your response? Uh, my the big question is always where are the fish. And I, you know, to that, I always say in the water. Uh, you know, that's an easy one. But yeah, people are always just curious about you know how are things going. Um, where, what areas can I find fish? And it really just depends on what you're looking for. You know, if you're looking for kokanee, you're going to want to go out to the deeper end. Those guys are pelagic, so they spend most of their life swimming around in deep open water. So be looking. I'm sure Brian gave you guys some tips on what depths to be looking at. But they're going to be out towards more towards the dam around those islands. Um, I do catch quite a few more browns out on that side of the lake too. So if you're looking for browns, maybe try over there. The smallmouth bass are going to be around rock features maybe jig with some um, soft plastics or something like that around rock features. And an interesting one that Brian's really turned me on to now is these snake river cutthroats. We put a handful of those little guys in there. Um, They're pretty hard to find, but what he's found is if you catch or start looking around like maybe even like one or two foot and deep when you're ice fishing, Mm -hmm. um, they really key into super, super shallow water. So, you might be if you if you're casting out from shore, that might be even too far. So try casting along the side of the bank, and you may catch one of those guys, and they're really pretty fish as well. All right, well that's pretty good advice right there. We'll remember that certainly next time we're out at Eleven Mile. Lastly, here Tyler, before we let you go, and uh, thanks for joining us here on Colorado Outdoors. You know, obviously, uh, aside from meeting angler demand, fishing at Eleven Mile also has a great economic impact on on both Park County and and the state as a whole. Talk a little bit about the over $2 billion economic impact that fishing has here in the state of Colorado. It really is, is substantial. I don't think a lot of people realize that. Yeah, it actually, I saw some figures this last oh, was a couple months ago that um, fishing, like fishing license sales, is actually bringing in more revenue now than hunting license sales. And for a number of years, at least for economic impact, I know fishing has brought in substantially more money than hunting has to the state of Colorado. So it's a huge industry, and it brings in a lot of um, resources for businesses. You know, whether it's your bait shop, tackle shop, hotels, restaurants, um, gas stations, you name it. People are out looking around, trying to get out in nature, especially with the past couple of years. Folks have been um, kind of trapped in home, at home. You know, they want to get out. Yep. And so we, we do these surveys every so often when we have a, a funding available and the time. Um, they're called a Creel survey. And so we go and we hire some recent you know, high school or college graduates to go out and interview anglers. And so you may get contacted by somebody. And whenever you're out fishing, and it may not be a game warden, it could be one of these um, these creel clerks. And so what they're looking for is just going to ask you, you know, how is your fishing experience going? What have you caught? How long have you been fishing? And so we try and use those data, and it informs us, you know, what's the use like at each reservoir and how many anglers are going out per day. Um, and so we also hired a consulting firm. Um, called, they're called Southwick & Associates. And so what they were able to do is, you know, using that economic data that you were talking about, 
they were actually able to find out that on average an angler spends about $103 on each angling trip, so each time they go out. Hmm. And that's not everybody. You know, that's just an average. So, yep. you know, if you're going out, with, you know, with your bobber or something to the local pond, that's a pretty cheap trip. But some of these guys, they're buying, you know, big bass boats and stuff, and so they're on the, the extreme other end of it, you know. And so on average, it's about 103 bucks. And so what we can use this creel survey data, we figure out, okay, how many anglers did we have? How many um, angler use days did we have? And that we can multiply those numbers and give us an idea of, you know, the, the economic impact. So for 11 mile, for example, towards that number, we're looking at, you know, $5.8 million annually in economic impact. So that's folks going out, uh, buying gas, food, bait, things like that, just contributing to the local economy. So just one of these three major reservoirs in South Park brings in almost $6 million annually just to the local economy. So yeah. it's pretty substantial impact. It's amazing what uh, the outdoor activities do for the state of Colorado. We're so fortunate. Number one, they have the natural resources. Number two, they have the opportunity. Hey, Tyler, great stuff today. We appreciate you joining us here in Colorado Outdoors. Sure, yeah. Glad to be on and sure have me back for other discussions in the future if you'd like. Uh, get our thanks to Tyler Farr. We uh, turn our attention now to Jeff Spohn. He's a senior aquatic biologist for the Northeast region of CPW. And Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Uh, prior to becoming a senior aquatic biologist for the region, you were a local aquatic biologist in the upper South Platte River Basin. Thus, you managed 11 Mile. Well, what years were you in that role for CPW? I started in 2003 um, and then took on this senior aquatic biologist position uh, three and a half years ago. Well, with that time you spent there at 11 Mile, give us a little bit of history. And, you know, was it as popular a fishery back in the day as, as maybe it is now? Sure. Um, back in 2003, we were still playing catch up from the impacts of whirling disease when it came to our fish production capacity in a hatchery. So, I, in that day, we weren't getting the, the numbers of fish that um, I was needing to optimally manage the fishery. Um, so, with that, catch rates were down by anglers. And the use um, was relatively suppressed compared to what it is today. You know, 11 miles gone through some kind of some different uh, variations, if you will. I mean, there was a time of dominant suckers, and the northern pike became kind of the dominant fish. Now we've got a good balance with the exceptional trout in there. Can you kind of explain kind of the ebb and flow of 11 mile and why, why that's happened over the period of time? Um, back in the 1960s, uh, the Division of Wildlife um, at that time introduced northern pike into 11 mile reservoir. And with our survey sampling, we were catching about 300 rough fish, which primarily were suckers and carp to every one trout um, in our gillnet surveys. Um, so we brought in northern pike at that time. 11 Mile was a workhorse reservoir for water supply for the city of Denver. So basically it would come um, to full capacity during runoff and then in the fall and winter months the reservoir was drawn down and then in the springtime when the pike in the reservoir that we that we introduced um, were actively spawning there was um, no spawning habitat available for those fish so basically we had a silent predator in the system um, that could forage on um, the, the rough fish that we wanted to knock back to help um, the survival of trout and then about in the 80s Mountain Reservoir was built upstream, managed by the city of Aurora, and 11 Mile Reservoir became what we consider a drought reservoir, which is only um, used during a severe drought situation, like we saw in 2002. And what that does is it creates a, a stable reservoir. 
Well, take us back to, in fact, you know, we were talking earlier with, with Brian Johnson, and he was talking about the switch and stocking regime and, and how things were altered back then that you guys were working on. How did you guys come to that conclusion that, that the best way to do it was stocking the trout through the ice? Well, there's a couple of different things. We looked at that winter um, ice stocking regime that we started in Spinney uh, before my time in the late 90s, I believe it was 1999, and saw how um, that program was successful. And Brian and I just started discussing ways to change um, hatchery rearing at Mount Chavano State Fish Hatchery, and they had a a gap in their production um, where they could produce a 10-inch product for us for 11 mile that would help us get beyond um, a lot of the smaller northern pike in that system and allow the the trout to um, survive better. And um, what we also found out during that time that 11 mile reservoir was productive enough that putting a fish um, through the ice in 11 mile, the productivity um, of the reservoir itself was amenable to allowing those trout to to survive and, and thrive through the ice, um, unlike some of the lesser productive reservoirs in the state where you um, where winter stocking through the ice uh, doesn't work as well just because of the productivity of the reservoirs um, aren't as great as uh, reservoirs such as Love Mall. You know, we talked with Brian about uh, stocking the cutbows. So, so what kind of trout were in 11 mile prior to you guys kind of changing that regime? Well, like I mentioned, because of whirlwind disease, the numbers of fish um, weren't available to us to optimally manage the reservoir. So really what we were doing uh, was trying to get in any kind of rainbow strain possible that our hatcheries could produce um, at that time. And a lot of the fish that we were stocking were smaller, sub-catchable, fish that were in the three to five inch range, um, you know, which are um, a lot easier for northern pike to predate on compared to the current 10 inch fish product that we're able to produce today. Um, For example, we happened to be out night electrofishing on an evening shortly after we stocked about 100,000 subcatchables off the boat ramp in open water, and we ended up catching a couple of northern pike and I've got a picture of a 28-inch northern pike that had over 30 inches of subcatchables in its stomach well, that were you know, obviously targeting the subcatchable fish that were recently stocked a few nights prior. Now, you can find some pretty good browns there in the Dream Stream. Have there always been a presence of browns in 11 Mile? Yes, there has been. Um, looking back at our stocking history, we haven't stocked a, a brown trout in 11 Mile Reservoir or the South Platte River upstream um, also known as the Dream Stream, since about 1982. So basically the brown trout population that you're referring to, you know, about the Mile Reservoir at this time, we considered a wild population um, where they live majority of their life in 11 Mile Reservoir. And then when they get the urge to spawn in late fall, um, they move up into the Dream Stream um, and they spawn. And then the next summer, those... Um, eggs hatch, the fry emerge from the gravel. And they live in the dream stream for about a season, um, and then at about age one, they migrate back down to the reservoir, and the cycle um, continues from there. You know, we've been talking trout, and you mentioned uh, northern pike as well. There's also kokanee salmon. Well, when were kokanee first stocked in the reservoir? Um, the latest digital record I have is 1973. There may have been um, some stockings prior 
that um, in a 11 mile reservoir because of the productivity that I mentioned earlier um, can handle a, a pretty robust uh, trout population and also a, a cocaine salmon population. In post whirling disease, um, one of the quick jump starts that we decided to do was stock an abundance of cocaine into 11 mile reservoir starting back in 2003. And that population took off, and we actually were able to use 11 mile reservoirs of cocaine brood water, um, which means that we were able to catch um, mature adult cocaine, spawn them, send those eggs off to the hatchery, and then the next year we're able to bring them back not only for 11 mile, but for other cocaine fisheries throughout the state. That went on for about five years, and then unfortunately, um, a parasite called gill ice um, somehow found its way into the system and since then has, has done a pretty, um, has knocked back the kokanee fishery pretty significantly. So there are some kokanee out there today, um, just not near the numbers that were back in the, the mid-2000s when we started to jumpstart that fishery. You know, we've, we've gotten a lot of information from Brian and Tyler and now you and talking about 11 Mile, but is there anything else? you can think of that maybe uh, the anglers and, and folks who love to visit 11 miles should know about that area? Yeah, I mean, 11 Mile, ang- 11 mile Reservoir is an angling destination, um, hands down. The other great thing about 11 Mile Reservoir, it provides ample camping, which you can, um, where sportsmen can actually um, camp there and fish 11 Mile Reservoir, but it's also in close proximity to a, a lot of other great aquatic resources in the area. You've got 11 Mile Canyon, which is downstream of 11 Mile Reservoir. You have the Dream Stream, which is upstream of 11 Mile. Um, also, Spinning Mountain Reservoir and Terror Reservoir, and also Terriel Reservoir in close proximity. So, sure. um, you, know, you could use basically 11 Mile Reservoir in the state park um, as a base camp to um, you know access other great fisheries in South Park. And finally, uh, you, you've spent time as a local aquatic biologist in that area, so tell us a little bit about your time at Spinning Mountain Reservoir and, and maybe something we should know about that area. Spinning Mountain Reservoir is also a great fishery. Um, it's got a restrictive bag and harvest limit and an artificial fly and lure um, terminal tackle regulation on it. So it's primarily um, targeting for uh, the fly and the, the lure fishermen. Bait angling is not allowed. Uh, you can harvest one trout that has to be over 20 inches in length per day. Uh, it's a very productive fishery. It also receives some escapee trout from Antero Reservoir, so the trophy component is also available at Spinney. Um, very productive reservoir. Um, one of the, the greatest memories that I have from managing Spinney um, is the Mitch Hatch that happens every June. Um, you know, angling during that time suppresses, but it really gives insight because the fish are, um, you know, on the midge forage base at that time, but it really gives you insight on how productive Spinning Mountain Reservoir is. Um, there's clouds of these midges that come off um, during that time, and it's just a just a great place to be and a great natural phenomena to um, experience. Well, that upper South Platte River Basin is a wonderful, wonderful area. Hey, Jeff, we appreciate you joining us here in Colorado Outdoors. Thank you. Our thanks to Brian Johnson, Tyler Swar, and Jeff Spohn for sharing their knowledge about 11 Mile Reservoir, one of the many recreational gems here in the state of Colorado.
Remember, for anything and everything pertaining to Colorado Parks and Wildlife, go to our website at cpw.state.co.us. Thanks for joining us on Colorado Outdoors, powered by Great Outdoors Colorado. I'm your host, Mark Johnson. Until next time, get out and enjoy the great outdoors in our beautiful state of Colorado. Colorado Parks and Wildlife is a nationally recognized leader in conservation, outdoor recreation, and wildlife management. The agency manages 42 state parks, 960-plus species of wildlife in Colorado, more than 350 state wildlife areas, and a host of recreational programs from hunting and fishing to the state's trails program, boat registration, snowmobiles, off-highway vehicles, and more. All of its management is in perpetuity for the enjoyment of Coloradans and its visitors.